On Monday, BuzzFeed headlined, These eight men own as much wealth as half the world. This vital bit of information came with this supporting fact, courtesy of BuzzFeed special correspondent James Ball and UK editorial developer Chris Applegate. Quote, The world's eight richest men are worth $426 billion. The world's poorest 3.7 billion people together own $409 billion, $17 billion less. These statistics came courtesy of Oxfam. BuzzFeed tut tuts, quote, The findings shed stark light on the scale of inequality across the world, with the figures also revealing that the wealthiest 1% of the population together own more than the remaining 99% combined. The eight men who own as much as half the world are Microsoft founder Bill Gates, Zara founder Amancio Ortego, U.S. investor Warren Buffett, Carlos Slim Hilo, owner of Mexican conglomerate Grupo Carso, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg, Oracle co-founder Larry Ellison, and businessman and former New York City mayor Michael Bloomberg. Oxfam, which routinely stumps for global redistributionism, bewailed the health divide, the wealth divide. Said, quote, while one in nine people on the planet will go to bed hungry tonight, a small handful of billionaires have so much wealth they would need several lifetimes to spend it. The fact that a super rich elite are able to prosper at the expense of the rest of us at home and overseas shows how warped our economy has become. Inequality is not only keeping millions of people trapped in poverty, it is fracturing our societies and poisoning our politics. First off, There is no indicator anywhere in this report that the wealth of the world's eight wealthiest men was ill-gotten. There is no record of them enslaving people or robbing banks or burning down rival businesses. The reason these people are rich is because they have founded businesses that created better products and services and engaged in more consensual transactions than any other people on planet Earth. Bill Gates' Microsoft created a reputed 12,000 millionaires among his employees. Microsoft currently employs more than 100,000 people. Microsoft employees have been given one have given more than $1 billion to charity. Microsoft products have made millions of lives easier and better and millions of businesses cheaper to run. The same is true for Amazon, one of the world's great companies. Certainly, as a consumer, I benefit from Amazon every single day. It's true of Zara. My wife loves it. It's true of Facebook. It's true of Oracle, among others. Where exactly is the great sin? Oxfam's implication seems to be that wealth belongs to the collective, and we must therefore reallocate it. Hence their language about a super-rich elite prospering at our expense. But these rich people aren't prospering at the expense of others. Since 1981, the global extreme poverty rate has been sliced in half. Meanwhile, from 1979 to 2014, the upper middle class in America grew from 12% of the population to 30% of the population. America's poor are doing better than the middle class in most places on Earth, thanks to the glories of free market economics. Here's what Pew Research said in 2015, quote, The U.S. stands head and shoulders above the rest of the world. More than half, 56% of Americans, were high income by the global standard. More than 32% were upper middle income. In other words, almost 9 in 10 Americans had a standard of living that was above the global middle income standard. Only 7% of people in the United States were middle income, 3% were low income, and only 2% were poor. The quest for income inequality is a fool's errand. That's because the only way to rectify imbalances is to punish successful risk-taking. The reason that investors make greater profits than those who do the actual work is because the investor takes the risk necessary in order to create a profit margin with which to pay those people. Oxfam neglects to mention where the world's poorest people live. According to the World Bank, two-thirds of the world's poorest human beings live in India, China, Nigeria, Bangladesh, and Congo. The Heritage Foundation Index of Economic Freedom ranks these countries thusly in terms of their participation in free markets and their governmental dedication to rule of law and private property rights. India ranks 120th, Congo ranks 168th, China ranks 137th, Nigeria ranks 129th, Bangladesh ranks 131st. So, Oxfam's solution is to regulate markets more? A richer world relies on freer markets both at home and abroad, but the foolish, inconsistent focus on income inequality merely provides cover for policies that actually enhance human suffering rather than mitigating it. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. So, so glad that you could join us here on Martin Luther King Day, a great day for America. It's also a great day for me. Yesterday was my birthday, so woohoo to me. I'm now Christian's second favorite 33-year-old Jew. Uh, I'm, I'm 33 today, so that's very exciting. Uh, among my favorite gifts, uh, my dad got me a Louisville Slugger baseball bat, which is very exciting. Heading into 2017, I intend to wrap it in wire and use it as I see fit. Uh, and, uh, and also my wife got me, uh, she got a mug for herself that said, I don't need Google. My husband knows everything. She's going to take a picture of herself drinking from that mug and put it on a mug for me. So that's very exciting. I'm very excited about that. Also, it seems that the good folks at the Daily Wire, Mathis and Jonathan and Austin and the rest of the crew, 
Bailey and Cynthia, everybody. They got me these wonderful gifts. So let's just open one right now. Let's see what's in here. I'm very excited to open these gifts on air. Let's see what we've got. Oh, wow. Wow. Yes, it's just what I've always wanted. It's an ad read. Thank you to Blue Apron, one of our sponsors, uh, for, uh, for sponsoring the program. Blue Apron, fantastic service. Have a lot of friends, have a lot of uh, re- relatives who, who use Blue Apron. Blue Apron, the way that it works is that they send fresh ingredients to your house with the recipe, and all these meals are able to be cooked in 40 minutes or less. The recipes apparently are all fantastic. That's what I've heard from everybody who's tried Blue Apron. For less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers those seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meal. There's variety. You can choose from from a variety of new recipes every week, or you can let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. The recipes are not repeated within a year, so you're never going to get bored, which is great because at our house, we have like a weekly rotating menu, and um, it gets boring really, really fast. Blue Apron makes sure that doesn't happen. Again, they all have the step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe, and everything is guaranteed for freshness. Check out this week's menu, and you get the first three meals for free with free shipping if you go to blueapron.com slash appear. It's a big thing in L.A. Like, everybody in L.A. is using Blue Apron now, which is which is just fantastic. It's Blue BlueApron.com slash Shapiro. You will love it. Everybody I know who's tried it absolutely loves it. BlueApron.com slash Shapiro. Uh, so check that out. Blue Apron is a better way to cook. Oh, thanks, guys. Oh, you got me a cupcake. Oh, that's so nice. Look at that. Is it kosher? Yes, it is. Wow. A kosher cupcake. Well, happy birthday to me, gang. Woo. Oh, yeah. That's right. So that means I won't go to jail this year. Woo! All right. So now we can actually jump into the news of the day with all the birthday, all the birthday paraphernalia put aside. We can jump into uh, jump into the the news of the day. So uh, the big news of the day, obviously, it's Martin Luther King Day, and we'll get to how Democrats are exploiting race because it's Martin Luther King Day. But I want to start that with an article from a guy named Oliver Thomas. Okay, Oliver Thomas writes this piece for. The, for, for USA Today. And the piece is totally nuts. So the piece is titled, this is why it's getting all sorts of attention, the piece was titled, Whites Killed MLK. Now we honor him. Okay, so I wasn't there, but it wasn't me. Okay, my parents were around at that time. wasn't them. In fact, there were lots of white people who were around at that time, and it wasn't those people, actually. It was just, like, the guy who did it. But what is this thing really about? It's all about virtue signaling. It's about virtue signaling. So what the piece says is, quote, Seems like every time Dr. King showed up somewhere, things got torn up or burned up. So we killed him. Not me, of course. I'm not a racist. But who thinks he is? So we tried to fix it. Made his birthday a national holiday. Put him on a pedestal where we can honor him and he can't poke us in the eye. This neglects a few kind of crucial issues with regard to the civil rights movement. One, a lot of white Americans back the civil rights movement, which is why it was successful. It turns out that the black population of the United States is approximately 10%. You need a lot of other race allies in order to make a success if you are a minority group. That's just the reality of politics. Okay, second, if you look at the faces in the Selma March, pretty diverse group. And it was Martin Luther King's recognition, unlike Malcolm X, early Malcolm X, it was Martin Luther King's recognition that you actually needed to work with people across the racial spectrum in order to move forward with individual civil rights that made him successful. He was successful not just because he was a fantastic orator and a really profound thinker on on racial matters, but because he actually had the foresight to reach out to people who are not black as allies. But today's civil rights leaders are not interested in that. Malcolm X actually won the the war. I think Martin Luther King won the battle, and Malcolm X won the war in a lot of ways, because now we have racial polarization on all fronts. Not even late Malcolm X, like after Malcolm X became an actual Muslim as opposed to a member of the Nation of Islam uh, and and started talking about racial tolerance and then got shot for his trouble by the members of the Nation of Islam, allegedly. Um, But like early Malcolm X, like white devil's Malcolm X, like there's, there's there's a certain resonance to that in today's politics that was supposed to be gone a while ago. Well, so this white preacher, uh, this, this fellow Thomas, Oliver Thomas, he continues along these lines. He says, quote, I'll let Ta-Nehisi Coates boil it down for you. First of all, you should never let Ta-Nehisi Coates boil down anything for you. Ta-Nehisi Coates is a wildly overrated writer. He's a wildly overrated thinker. I mean, I think that Ta-Nehisi Coates' worldview can be summed up by the fact that he, he wrote in one of his pieces or in his book uh, that he, during 9-11 he was sitting on the top of his apartment building watching 9-11 happen and he didn't feel anything. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates said, quote, white to, so this is uh, from Oliver Thomas, white society was not achieved through wine tastings and ice cream socials, but rather through the pillaging of life, liberty, labor, and land. In short, through three centuries of kidnapping, torture, murder, and rape, we built an entire society on these bruised and broken backs that and countless Native Americans driven off their 
their land. I have been asked to speak at a Martin Luther King Day event. Me, a white preacher, speaking to a predominantly black audience filled with gifted preachers. Well, here's the message. No white person understands the black experience. And this is what the left wants you to take away from Martin Luther King Day, is that you should judge people by the color of their skin, not the content of their character. And we can never have a situation in which a little black child and a little white child hold hands and walk into the future together. We can't have that because the black kid can't understand the white kid, and mostly the white kid really can never understand the black kid. First of all, this is just not factually true. Obviously, we should lament and decry and remember the absolute evils of slavery and the horrors of Jim Crow. But to suggest that American power was built on the back of slavery is economically illiterate, illiterate and morally obtuse. It really is. Slavery is not a, an institution that benefits, that benefits societies economically speaking. It doesn't. Slavery is actually backwards. This is one of the reasons why the North was wildly outcompeting the South during the Civil War. I mean, you would have imagined that the side with all the slaves would have won if slavery were all that great for the economy. Slavery is not good for the economy, it turns out. It turns out that wages are much better for the economy than slavery is. So the idea that we built our economic power on the back of slavery is just not true. We actually built our economic power in spite of slavery. The Great British Empire really became the Great British Empire after outlawing slavery. America got more powerful in spite of slavery. We got more powerful in spite of Jim Crow, not because of Jim Crow. One of the things that a lot of the kind of revisionist racialists like to say is America only became powerful and wealthy because of Jim Crow. Are you kidding? It turns out that taking 10% of your population and treating them like animals is not good for the economy. It's not actually good for the economy. You're losing all of the intellectual... Forget about the moral issues involved. Forget about the moral evil of that. You're losing all the intellectual capital. You're losing all the hard work. You're losing all the marketable skills. The Constitution of the United States is great, not because it, it, it enshrined slavery permanently, but because it was a step toward abolishing slavery. That's what the Constitution was designed to do. When you hear people talk about the three-fifths law and how racist the three-fifths law was, the whole purpose of the three-fifths law in the Constitution, the whole purpose of the three-fifths provision, is because the North did not want the South to be able to vote for continuing slavery by counting slaves as citizens for purposes of allocation of votes. They came up with this compromise so that they could actually have, actually have a functional country. But the purpose of the three-fifths clause was partially to get rid of slavery. The Declaration of Independence, as Frederick Douglass made clear, was not because it was particular to white people, but because it was universal. Frederick Douglass was very passionate about the Declaration of Independence. So all of this is just historically not true, but it's the message of it that's really gross. So what Martin Luther King did, and the reason that you know, you're proud to show videos of Martin Luther King to your kids. My, my daughter is a little too young to understand it. She's only just turning three next week. But as soon as she's old enough to understand it, I'm going to be proud and honored to show her speeches of Martin Luther King in, at, the, at the March on Washington. Because King appealed to our common humanity as individual human beings. The, the fact that we could understand the black experience, even if we could never fully experience it. We can never fully experience what anyone else in society is going through. I can't live somebody else's experience. That's not possible. But I can understand I can empathize with what they're going through. And that allows me to really, I, I can think about what it would be like if I were they, and then I can figure out what exactly, what exactly to do about that. That's the whole point. Common understanding is necessary in order to cure anything. If you're starting from the point of I can never understand you, that actually leads to more tribalism, not less tribalism. Why would I care about somebody I can't understand? If a species of alien came down and there was no way to understand them, would that generate more sympathy or less sympathy? The whole purpose of establishing lines of communication is to understand each other better. This is counterproductive racially. Martin Luther King's whole shtick, his whole spiel, was that individual decency trumps group grievance, particularly for white folks. Like, white folks can't do this group grievance routine against black folks. They actually have to treat black folks as individuals. And black folks, likewise, have to treat white folks as individuals. So saying that all whites killed Martin Luther King is just as inane as saying all Democrats killed Martin Luther King. It's just as inane as saying all Muslims are responsible for every terror attack. It's silly. It's counterproductive. It doesn't actually establish the ties that need to happen in order to, in order to achieve. Beyond which, Islam is actually a philosophy. White is not a philosophy. It's a color. And the fact is the Civil Rights Act was passed by a bunch of white people. The fact is Jim Crow was ended by a bunch of white people. Yes, it took black leadership to do that. Thank God for the black leaders. Thank God for people like John Lewis, who we'll get to in a second. But that doesn't mean that it didn't take a coalition of people across racial lines in order to reach success. I mean, if you want racial reconciliation, the reason that Martin Luther King is a great figure and Malcolm X is not a great figure is because Malcolm X's, Malcolm X's perspective on race is counterproductive and leads to polarization. Martin Luther King's perspective on race is a deeply American one, a uniquely American one. 
And that's why we celebrate his birthday today. Now, meanwhile, Donald Trump has been elected president. And of course, that means it's time for the left to completely lose its freaking mind. I mean, they've gone completely nuts. Representative John Lewis led it off. John Lewis, of course, uh, was famous because uh, he led the attempt to break a uh, the, the segregated segregation in the South. Uh, he was clubbed about the ears for his trouble. And so real civil rights hero, John Lewis. But just because, you know, as I get older, one of the things that I, I tend to realize is that there are no heroes, there are no villains, there are just people who do heroic things and people who do villainous things. People are people. Are people. Like, you can say if somebody is a saint, you know, over the course of their life, then they're a saint over the course of their life. But a lot of people who do heroic things also say stupid things. A lot of people who do really villainous things also do good things. Uh, and it's easier as, as a human being to label action rather than to label people. Uh, I'll say that, that John Lewis was a civil rights hero. He did very heroic things during the civil rights struggle. That does not mean he's anywhere close to right on what he's about to say about Donald Trump here. Uh, I don't see this president-elect as a legitimate president. You do not consider him a legitimate president. Why is that? I, I think the Russians participated in helping this man get elected and they helped destroy the candidacy of Hillary Clinton. Uh, I don't plan to attend inauguration. It would be the first one that I miss uh, since I've been in the Congress. You, you cannot be at home with something that you feel that is wrong. That's going to send a that's going to send a big message to a lot of people in this country that you don't believe he's a legitimate president. I think there was a conspiracy on the part of the Russians and others to help him get elected. That's not right. That's not fair. That's not the open democratic process. Okay, so, you know, whatever you think of the Russian interference in the election, the fact is there is a legitimate vote held based on the information that was available to the public and Hillary Clinton lost. So John Lewis is wrong here. So Donald Trump naturally goes to Twitter to respond. And here are his tweets. Congressman John Lewis should spend more time on fixing and helping his district, which is in horrible shape and falling apart, not to mention crime infested, rather than falsely complaining about the election results. All talk, 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 no action or results. Sad. Right? There's that typical Trump sad with the exclamation point. Congressman John Lewis should finally focus on the burning and crime infested inner cities of the U.S. I can use all the help I can get. So, you know, is this typically subtly worded Donald Trump. No, this is pretty typical Trump. But uh, Trump's not wrong about the fact that if this were reversed, everybody on the left would lose their mind, right? If this were somebody saying that Hillary Clinton were not a legitimate president. In fact, when Donald Trump said that Barack Obama was not a legitimate president, that he was born outside the United States, everybody rightly went nuts. Now, everybody's getting on Trump for this. And there are a bunch of people on the left who said that, that Trump was attacking John Lewis racially. Nina Turner uh, who's a, a commentator uh, on um, I, uh, on CNN, uh, former former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner. This is what she had to say about Donald Trump's response to John Lewis. Well, he's Congressman John Lewis. I just want to say that to, to make sure that we give him the requisite respect that he deserves. And 50 years ago, everything that he did is still important today. Now, I, as a Democrat, we know that the Russians had some impact, but they didn't go vote on election day. They didn't mess with the electronic data. So there are some Democrats that get that, and they didn't write the emails. Democrats are going to have to wear that. But at the same time, what the president-elect needs to do, this is not the apprentice, the White House edition. His tweets were insensitive. For him to categorize Congressman Trump, uh, excuse me, Congressman Lewis's district as, as, as in bad shape. Crime infested. Crime infested. It's not, by the way. Fortune 500 companies. It's about 58% African-American. Right. Institutions of higher learning. Yeah. It is diverse ethnically and it is diverse economically. So my memo to my, to my, to my white elected officials, not just a president elect Trump, but a lot, a lot of white elected officials make this mistake in making the African-American community a very a homogeneous. They, they read us the wrong way. They think everybody's poor, everybody's broken down. That is not the truth. So they need to come and visit some African-American communities okay, and so, see so Trump, the, the, so, so she's she's implying that Trump is a racist because he said that Lewis's district was crime infested and, uh, and, and in bad shape. Here are the actual facts about John Lewis's district. This is Georgia's fifth congressional district as compared to the state average and the national average. Okay, here it is from the Census Bureau. The unemployment rate in John Lewis's district as of 2015 was 8.0 the state average was 5.5%. The national average was 5%. So is there way higher unemployment in John Lewis's district? Answer, 
yes, there is much higher unemployment in John Lewis's district. Okay, when it looks at, when you look at the poverty rate, the poverty rate is 17.3% in Georgia's 5th district. It's 17% state average, 13.5% nationally, a little bit higher than the state average, a lot higher than the national average. Now, there are some major businesses that are located in John Lewis's district, but the, the crime rates are also... They are higher in John Lewis's district. Okay, so Atlanta is located inside Lewis's district. It had the 14th highest violent crime rate in the United States in 2015 with 1,120 violent crimes per 100,000 residents, which is triple the national average. That's triple the national average. Okay, so is Trump wildly wrong on all of this? No, Trump isn't wildly wrong on all of this. Should Lewis be doing a better job for his district? Yes, he should be doing a better job for his district. Does one thing have to do with another? No. Is it the way that I would have phrased it? No. But to, to claim that Trump is a big racist because he's pointing out that Lewis's district isn't in the greatest shape ever, uh, that is a stretch. By the way, he would say the same thing about some white person's district, right? If a white person had insulted him, he would have said exactly the same thing. And you know he would if you're on the left. You know Trump has no holds barred. If you, if you attack him in any way, he is going to loose the hounds of Twitter on you. And that means that he's going to call your district crime-ridden and it's going to be like, he'll compare it to Mad Max and, and it'll just be Mel Gibson running through the Australian wasteland, according to Donald Trump. It doesn't matter, right? I mean, Mel, he said Meryl Streep was an overrated actress because she insulted him at the Golden Globes. Do you really think that if John Lewis were white, he wouldn't have said the same thing? It's just really silly all around. But the left is really attempting now to push this notion that Donald Trump uh, is an illegitimate president. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a second. But first, I have to open my second gift of the day. I am so, you guys, you really wrapped it up beautifully here. So thank you for that. I'll never be able to guess what this is. Oh, it's your resignations. No, it isn't. Uh, it's, uh, no, actually, it's just, it's another ad. Thank you to our newest advertisers over at Mac Weldon. So Mac Weldon makes just fantastic, fantastic stuff. Uh, it's really comfort wear. It's, it's underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodie, sweatpants, uh, and uh, it, it all fits beautifully. They have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means that they, they quash stench, which is, which is, Definitely an excellent thing. They also want to make sure that you are comfortable. So uh, all, of the, all of their clothes are so comfortable. If you don't like the, the clothes that they send you, you can actually keep it, your first pair, and you can keep it, and they'll still refund you, no questions asked. Uh, I've gotten a bunch of pairs of underwear and, uh, and some, some sweatpants and a shirt from them. It's super duper comfortable. Uh, I can tell you I've been wearing this pair of Mack Weldon underwear for at least last week, uh, and uh, it hasn't needed to be washed. It's fantastic. It's like Superman's underwear. It's just, it's just tremendous. But really, their stuff is really Really, really good. It's really comfortable. Uh, I really enjoy wearing it, and you will too. It's uh, I'm I'm somebody who, as soon as I go home, I put on the comfort wear. I don't stay dressed up in this in this just unbelievably snazzy outfit. As soon as I get home, I throw on my Mac Weldon, and then I go work out or I hang out and write, and um, and it makes my life much better. If you really really want to feel wealthy, get some Mac Weldon clothes because it makes you feel luxurious in the way that you're being lazy. It's it's really fantastic. Mac Weldon. They look good, by the way. You can you can uh, work out or go to work. You can even like their, their stuff is it, it has a range. It's not just for hanging out at home. You can work out in it. You can go to work in it. Actually, a lot of their stuff is nice enough for that. MacWeldon.com get twenty percent off all of their merchandise using promo code Shapiro. That's promo code Shapiro S H A P I R O. But you know that or you wouldn't be listening. Promo code Shapiro MacWeldon.com get that twenty percent off. Uh, and uh, again, their product is awesome. We couldn't be prouder to have them as an advertiser. Okay, so final note before we have to sign off here on Facebook and YouTube. So the left is fully invested in calling Donald Trump illegitimate. And the right seems very perturbed about this. Oh, it's totally inappropriate for them to say it's illegitimate, that, that Trump is illegitimate. Okay, the left did it for years. Okay, the, 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 the left is in it. You know, they, they've been saying that they said Bush was illegitimate. They said that uh, they, they say that right now Trump is illegitimate. Every time a Republican is elected, it's illegitimate, right? Everything is illegitimate that the right does. And it's it's now coming from both sides, right? Donald Trump said that Barack Obama was basically illegitimate. Paul Krugman, who just a week ago was saying that Republicans are alienating too many people and polarizing the political discourse, wrote a column today in which he said, let's not talk about Mr. Trump's ravings. Instead, let's ask whether Mr. Lewis was right to say what he said. Is it okay, morally and politically, to declare the man about to move into the White House illegitimate? Yes, it is. In fact, it's an act of patriotism. 
So now we're back in the space where dissent is the highest form of patriotism. Blah, 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 blah. It's just amazing how the, the positions switch as soon as the shoe is on the other foot. As soon as Trump gets elected, then it's fine to say that the president is illegitimate. If the results had been exactly the same and Republicans had said Hillary is illegitimate, she shouldn't have been running, she's a criminal, the left would have said, how dare you? You accept her. She's your president. She's your president. You accept that. It's just amazing. There is no penalty, by the way, for calling the president just on a political note. It's actually beneficial. We've reached the point in American politics where casting the other side's winners as illegitimate is actually a a very useful tactic. Really, the left did this for George W. Bush for years and years and years. Nancy Pelosi did it for years and years and years. It was very successful for her. Donald Trump did it for Barack Obama. It was very successful for him. I think this is just part of the new political discourse, and we're all going to have to get used to it, is calling the other side illegitimate no matter what the actual result. Now, the only time I haven't seen that is with Obama 2012. To Obama 2012, I didn't see a lot of Obama is an illegitimate president from the right, uh, even though he had obviously lied about what happened in Benghazi in order to prop himself up at the end of the election cycle, even though the media were obviously propping him up. He was a legitimate president. I didn't see a lot of that from the right. But it's become sort of a, a, a ball to be batted around by both sides. So none of this is particularly surprising. Diane Feinstein is also saying that, that Donald Trump is illegitimate because Russia interfered. We've got a huge destruction of our system going on. So we have to, uh, we have to be full and robust in this look. And I trust that we are. I have worked with uh, Chairman Burr for a long time, uh, and I believe that this can happen. If it doesn't, yeah. we will sing out loud and clear. Let me buttonhole something, though. You said you believe that Russia's interference altered the outcome of the election. I do. I believe that. So do you believe with, well, he's a legitimate well, it's a combination. Yeah of a couple of things. I I think that, and I think uh, the FBI uh, in the October surprise, I call it an October surprise, of announcing a subsequent investigation did have an impact. And I believe the Clinton people... So, wow, she invented the term October surprise. Who knew? Um, But... Yes. So the the Democrats are just going to keep saying this. Uh, The the Democratic chair candidate is saying the same thing, that Trump was allegedly elected. Uh, we We can play that as well. He's truth telling. I don't think this is about just Democrats. This is Americans. Anyone with a smidgen of common sense can remember Donald Trump looking in the camera, encouraging Russia to hack into our electoral process cheerleading them on and the idea that whatever information these members of congress are getting out of this classified briefing had them storm out of that room makes it very clear that the decisions that the fbi made that were unprecedented to get involved in the election against hillary clinton pick a winner pick a loser when they had so much information that was so damaging what have we been talking about since this man was allegedly elected all allegedly elected I mean, now you, coming you acknowledge, out of you acknowledge that he, he he achieved the necessary electoral votes and is a legitimately elected president of the united states would you not well i haven't seen the classified briefing that the no, members no, you of congress did i imagine that i would have election okay so one of the questions that we're going to be asking as we continue here on the ben shapiro show is whether this is good strategy or not because there's a bit of a split opening up in the democratic party we also got to talk about trump going after snl we got to talk about trump on obamacare we got to talk about trump on nato eu the intelligence community uh trump on co- we have tons coming up like a lot and these these guys work really hard to cut all of this audio so you're going to want to be around <laughs> to as we as we analyze all of it because there's a lot to cover Plus, I will do a full-on spoiler complete review of La La Land. Um, so, yeah, I know I'll spoil it for all of you, but I'll warn you beforehand. Um, so we'll get to all that. But you have to become a subscriber at DailyWire.com to see that live right now over at DailyWire.com. Eight bucks a month will get you that. We have a bunch of goodies that are coming up right now. I am personally working on the goodie bag that will be available to you in 2017 as you uh, become a, a subscriber, an annual subscriber. Go to DailyWire.com right now to become a subscriber. Eight bucks a month. You get access to the mailbag as well, so you can join the show on Thursdays. We're going to have all sorts of new stuff coming up. Uh, we are the largest podcast in the conservative podcast in the United States. Check us out at dailywire.com. Make sure, by the way, if you listen on iTunes or SoundCloud, go to iTunes uh, to give us a five-star review. Because if you listen, you love. So go to iTunes and, uh, and you can review us uh, there. So make sure that you, you can do that for free. But to subscribe, you go to dailywire.com. All righty. So... 
Um, it's, so, so the Democrats are, are melting down over Trump's election. And there are a few Democrats who are pushing back a little bit, saying this is a mistake. You know, it, we probably shouldn't call this election illegitimate. Why don't we just fight Trump on his own terms? Bernie Sanders is one of those. When Bernie Sanders is the voice of reason in your party, man, you are in serious trouble. When the socialist old coot with three houses and, uh, and a real problem with handling his arms during his speeches— uh, is is the guy who you go to for your for your advice on and wisdom? You may have a problem, gang. Here is Bernie Sanders, nineteen thirty style socialist, talking about why Donald Trump is not illegitimate. Right now, what my job is, and I think the job of Democrats and Republicans, is to protect the middle class and working families of this country for some devastating ideas that Trump has proposed. Do you, you think remember, Donald George, Trump will be a legitimate president? Well, I think he's going to be inaugurated this week. I have great concerns, and apparently Republicans do as well. And there's going to be an investigation about the role that Russian hacking played in getting him elected. Do I think Russians supported him? Do I think they tried to get him elected? Do I think I worked against Clinton? I do. And that is something that has to be investigated. Does that make him but illegitimate? Right now, what my job is... Pardon me? Does that Those make- are just words. Right now, what my job... My job is right now, going beyond media conflicts and words, is to say that Donald Trump, among other things, told the American people he would not cut Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid. And right now, Republicans in the House and Senate are doing just that. Okay, so what Sanders is doing is actually smart. I mean, it's weird for me to say that, but Sanders politically is doing something much smarter than a lot of the typical Democrats are doing. He's actually pushing for treat Trump as a legitimate president and then discredit him as a legitimate president. That's much smarter. Joe Manchin from West Virginia, a guy who's, you know, you're going to have to win Democrats like Joe Manchin if you actually want to win a national election, Democrats. So you might want to take some advice from your, your senator from West Virginia. First of all, there is no indication whatsoever that any votes were tampered with, any voting machines were tampered with whatsoever anywhere, anywhere in the United States. In West Virginia, Donald Trump won by about 43%. And I can assure you, there was no tampering to get that type of a margin of victory. But that's not the case. So if they believe that there was collusion between uh, President-elect Donald Trump or his staff, uh, we'll find that out. But there's no indication of that whatsoever. The intent of the Russians has always been, under the Soviet control back in the 70s, they were always trying to be involved and influence our elections. We've never seen it at this degree. For everything that we say that we've been hearing and seeing shows that they've really gone more aggressively this time than ever before. They weren't successful, but basically they're intent. So all of this discord that we see going on between congressmen not attending, people basically saying he's not, not legitimate, basically then the Russians have accomplished what they tried to accomplish. Okay, so what Manchin is saying here is, is exactly right, that... Even if you think that the Russians tampered with with the information surrounding the election, that doesn't mean the election was illegitimate. And when you say it was, you're just handing the Russians one of their key goals, which is to delegitimize American elections. But the press have gone along with this. And now the press are sort of announcing, I love this. It's funny when the mask slips for the press. Uh, it's, it's actually pretty hilarious. So Politico senior media writer Jack Schaefer, he let the cat out of the bag today. He wrote a piece that was titled, Trump is making journalism great again. And in this piece, he said, quote, In his own way, Trump has set us free. Reporters must treat Inauguration Day as a kind of liberation day to explore news outside the usual Washington circles. What does that mean exactly? Well, what he says is that usually there's this sort of mutualism that happens between journalists and the White House, where journalists have scandalous information, they go to the White House, and the White House contextualizes it. They have a very friendly relationship with people in power. But now, says Schaefer, opportunities to ignore the White House minders and investigate Trump announce themselves almost daily. As Trump shuts down White House access to reporters, they will infest the departments and agencies around town the president has peeved. He says the intelligence establishment owes him no favors and less respect. It will be in their institutional interest to leak damaging material on Trump. The same applies to other bureaucracies. So suddenly journalists are hot and bothered. They're very excited. They're very excited. They're going to be adversarial. And the reason they're saying this is because Trump has declared them the enemy. Trump has declared them the enemy. Well, uh, hold on just a second. Okay, they were very adversarial with Bush. Bush was way less hard on the press than Obama was. Obama was awful for the press. Politico in 2015 did a poll of journalists. They found 65% of journalists said that the most anti-press administration they'd ever dealt with was Barack Obama's. But that didn't stop them from just slobbering all over the guy. So what's really going on right now? The press hates Trump, right? Trump hates the press. And so it's turned into the slap fight between Trump and the press, 
And you don't know where the truth lies anywhere in here. And that's how you end up with situations like Ben Smith of BuzzFeed releasing this this non-redacted, non-checked, unverified dossier of bad intel on Trump. He was on with uh, CNN's Brian Stelter, and Stelter was questioning him about this. And listen to some of his answers. Pretty crazy. We're well, not you just say summaries of the claims, them. but CNN was very careful not to share those details. No, what they do you were mean? I saw in that headline. The headline is claims he was compromised by Russian intelligence. That is an incredibly explosive claim. And to say you and I have here between us a secret document with explosive, dark claims, and we don't, we, you guys on the other side of the camera can't see it, but we can. I don't really understand. I guess I'm sort of interested, actually, in, because I, I see the case for reporting it out and not sharing it. I see the case for saying, here are these claims, here is this document at the center of the fight, take a look. I think I actually don't see the case for the middle position. I actually thought, I realize you're not a spokesman for CNN. The middle position and I don't is mean to put journalism. You, no, the, the journalism that we were all doing was, was to try to verify the claims. Once you repeat them and put them out there, but to not share the underlying but the, the documents. the actual claims were not put out there. The story that CNN uh, the published and the story the New York Times the published said that saw. this was a, a topic briefed to the president-elect and that that's what the news was. The headline that you just put up was claims that he was pro- compromised by Russian intelligence. I'm trying to figure out if you all are Washington Post or WikiLeaks. It seems to me you're trying to be both, uh, saying we're going to dump this document online. We don't know if it's real. We don't know. You know it's a real document. You don't know the truth. You don't know if the facts in it are true uh, or not. That's not what the Washington Post or CNN or the New York Times would do. You all aspire to be one of the world's great news divisions, but aren't you trying to be more like WikiLeaks in this case? We, we are, I think, well within the tradition of American journalism, which is every time you use the word alleged on your air, Every time you see the word alleged in print or on the web, that is saying we are repeating a claim we can't verify. That is a totally within the standard, particularly of covering law enforcement. So let's, that, so let's, you know, let's put the shoe on the other foot, as I'm fond of doing. Do you think that if there had been, I don't know, unverified documents about George W. Bush, that the media would have released them? Absolutely, they did. It finished Dan Rather's career, right? If there had been unverified documents about Barack Obama, you think they would have released them? Absolutely not. The L.A. Times still refuses to release tape that they have of Barack Obama doing a dinner tribute to Rashid Khalidi, one of the spokespeople for the Palestine Liberation Organization. So Trump has a a real right to be pissed about how the press have treated him. And when the press say that they're going to become, you know, bulwarks of democracy again, all I can say is, well, where were you during the Obama years? Where were you during the Obama years? Now, with all that said, I think there's a strong case to be made, and Republicans should be making it, that the press treat Trump unfairly. I think they should be making that case every day. That said, I think that they, uh, they, they are sort of off the mark when they're attacking Saturday Night Live. So Saturday Night Live is wildly biased, yes. They are, they are very much to the left. They ran a skit on Saturday night that, that targeted Trump again. Not a shock. Of course they did. Here's some of that skit. Hello, thank you for coming. I'd like to start by answering the question that's on everyone's mind. Yes, this is real life. This is really happening. (laughs) On January 20th, I, Donald J. Trump, will become the 45th president of the United States. And then two months later, Mike Pence will become the 46th. (laughs) I am so excited to live in the White House. I'm even going to have a little pet, like all the presidents do. Bill Clinton had socks, Barack Obama had beau, and I'll have Paul Ryan. I mean, I'm not gay, but I cannot wait to give it to that man for four years. And guys, I mean, who is excited for my inauguration day? Yes, thank you to those people over there who I definitely did not pay to do that. And we have got some of the biggest performers in the world lined up. Hold on to your tits and bits, because we have got three doors down. Also, from America's Got Talent, we've got... Jackie, what's her face? <clears throat> and best of all, we've got the one rock cat with the least money in her savings. This is not good SNL, but the, the entire SNL skit is, is just Alec Baldwin talking into camera, doing a horrible Trump impression, by the way. I mean, his Trump is really garbaggio. I mean, I can probably do Trump almost as well as Alec Baldwin. I'm not a professional actor. But Donald Trump, you know, if you're Trump, maybe your best move here is to ignore SNL. Not Trump. Here's Donald Trump tweeting about SNL. So he tweets, quote, NBC News is bad, but Saturday Night Live is the worst of NBC. (laughs) Not funny. Cast is terrible. Always a complete hit job. Really bad TV. And yet every Saturday night, Donald Trump seems to be watching. Really weird. Sean Spicer is the spokesperson for Donald Trump. He's going to be the White House press secretary. Uh, He's ripping into SNL as well. 
What, what Saturday Night Live did on Saturday, uh, on two, you know, last night, was disappointing. It was, it was not funny. It was mean-spirited. And it's gone from being a show that you can sit back and get a good laugh out of to just being something that's frankly mean and bad television. Okay, so now SNL is terrible and it's mean. Like, really, is this, is this necessary? Is this, is this how this, this all works now? Is that, is that you don't like SNL and so the president-elect of the United States talks about SNL? Again, Obama did some of this stuff, too. But really... It's just, is this productive? Is this helpful? Uh, I don't think that SNL is going to change its ways. I don't think a lot of Republicans are watching in the first place. I think that's why its ratings suck. Okay, meanwhile, Donald Trump is actually speaking about policy. So while everybody's focusing on his SNL tweets and his John Lewis tweets, he's actually talking about policy. And some of the stuff that he's saying about policy is a little disquieting, which is not a shock to me since I don't think that Donald Trump uh, is particularly conservative. I think all of, the, all of the fibs that were being told during the election cycle about how he's going to be wildly conservative I think they were just that, but we'll find out. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I am. I was wrong about him being elected. Maybe I'm wrong about what he'll do on policy. Well, he did an interview with the Washington Post about what he's going to do with Obamacare. He says that he's going to target pharmaceutical companies over drug prices, which is an excellent way of putting pharmaceutical companies out of business and preventing them from developing new profit-ready drugs, right? which is you know sort of the drugs that you use that are going to actually help your life. So he's going to cram down on pharmaceutical companies just the way Bernie Sanders was. That's that's what he says. And he also says, he also says that they want to provide universal access to health insurance, but that that's not exactly what Trump says. Trump says he wants everybody to have health insurance. Right? Not universal access, not you have the power to go and buy your own health insurance. He wants everyone to have health insurance. He says the Congress can't go get cold feet because the people will not let that happen. He says he wants health insurance for everybody, right? And I'm going to find the direct quote so that I'm not misquoting him here. He says, we're going to have insurance for everybody. There is a philosophy in some circles that if you can't pay for it, you don't get it. That's not going to happen with us. People, under, people covered under the law can expect to have great health care. It will be in a much simplified form, much less expensive and much better. So you explain to me how that's not single payer. Can someone explain to me how that's not single? Maybe the form of the actual legislation doesn't end up being single-payer or Obamacare. But how do you get to insurance for everybody that if you can't pay, that even if you can't pay for it, you're going to get it? How is that not single-payer or Obamacare? That means everyone either goes on Medicare or it means that you regulate that everybody buy insurance. You can't have insurance for everybody. There's a difference between universal access, which is what Republicans are preaching, and what Trump is saying, everybody is going to have insurance. And there's no way to do that, especially with some of the stuff like pre-existing conditions, without actually legislating it. There's no way to do that. So it'll be very fascinating to see what the actual final form of this legislation looks like, or whether Trump is just mouthing off without really knowing what he's talking about and actually passes something good. That's the best scenario. Best scenario is that he doesn't actually know what he's talking about, and what they pass is something written by Rand Paul and Paul Ryan. That, that's the best case scenario. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is doing interviews about NATO, and he's doing interviews about, uh, about the EU, and he says the EU is obsolete. Okay, there's a case to be made that the EU is obsolete. I've made that case myself, that Brexit was a good thing, that the EU is basically turned into rich countries subsidizing poor countries, fiscally responsible countries subsidizing non-fiscally responsible countries, countries not being able to control their own borders. There's a good case the EU is obsolete, but he also says that NATO is obsolete. So he said that NATO's current configuration was obsolete, and he said that in the context specifically of the Russian aggression against possible NATO countries. That's, that's what he said uh, in this interview. And he did a weekend interview with the Times of London, and in this interview with the Times of London, uh, he specifically talked about the about NATO. And I want to again, I want to find the exact the the exact comments that Donald Trump made because I think that it's important to to get him exactly right so that we don't mischaracterize him. Uh, what what Trump actually says here is he says number one, it was obsolete. He was asked about Russian aggression against NATO countries. He said, I said a long time ago, NATO had problems. Number one, it was obsolete because it was designed many, many years ago. Number two, the countries weren't paying what they're supposed to be paying. And then at the very, very end, he said, I I still think that NATO is important. He said at the very, very end, I still think that NATO is an important thing. Here is the problem. The Russians immediately came out, and they were very, very happy with everything that Trump just said about NATO. NATO was, is, is the most successful military alliance in the history of the 20th century by far. It may be the most successful military alliance in the history of the world, actually. Uh, he, just for, in terms of long-term checking the ambitions of your enemies, here's, what, here's his full answer. Now I've got it. He says, sure. Oh, sure, I know. The, the question was, can you understand why Eastern Europeans fear Putin and Russia? Can you understand? Here's Trump's answer. 
sure. Oh, sure, I know that. I mean, I understand what's going on. I said a long time ago, NATO had problems. Number one, it was obsolete because it was, you know, designed many, many years ago. Number two, the countries aren't paying what they're supposed to pay. I took such heat when I said NATO was obsolete. It's obsolete because it wasn't taking care of terror. Then it goes on. And he says, the other thing is the countries aren't paying their fair share. So we're supposed to protect countries. But a lot of those countries aren't paying what they're supposed to be paying, which I think is very unfair to the United States. With that being said, NATO is very important to me. So two paragraphs of why NATO sucks. And then, by the way, NATO is important to me. Uh, yes, I think that there are countries that have a legitimate fear because of what's going on uh, with, with Trump and NATO. Uh, and then and Trump's also in a fight with his own intelligence community. Uh, he, he attacked the intelligence community again over the weekend on Twitter. He said, Fox News, outgoing CIA chief John Brennan blasts President-elect Trump on Russia threat, does not fully understand. Oh, really? Couldn't do much worse. Just look at Syria, Redline, Crimea, Ukraine, and the buildup of Russian nukes. Not good. Was this the leaker of fake news? So he's attacking the acting CIA director as the leaker of the fake news report without any evidence. He's right, by the way, that they've done a crappy job with Russia, but his answer hasn't been, let's be harsher with Russia. That hasn't been his answer. And here's what, uh, here's what the CIA director had to say about all of that. This is information that's been out there circulating for many months. So it's not a question of the intelligence community leaking or releasing this information. It was already out there. But I might but it tell hadn't you been it, reported on, and one of the reasons it hadn't is because it hadn't been verified, and when you briefed the president on it, you collectively briefed the president on it, president-elect, that made it news. Well, nothing has been verified. It is unsubstantiated reporting that is out there that has been circulating in the private sector and with the media as well by a firm that pulled this information together. But what I do find outrageous is uh, equating an intelligence community with Nazi Germany. I do take great umbrage at that, and there is no basis for uh, Mr. Trump to point fingers at the intelligence community for leaking information that was already available publicly. Okay, so again, now he's in a fight with his own intelligence community. Is that a good thing? I don't think so. Uh, again, I, I object to the intelligence community being its sort of own shadow government and utilizing its power to, to break politicians. I think that's a horrible, horrible precedent. But it's, not, it's just not smart for, for Trump to be doing what he's doing on this. Speaking of other things that Trump's doing that are not particularly smart, Trump is also very upset that German cars are being sold in the United States, like BMW and VW. He tweeted over the weekend about cars. He said, the Democrats are most angry that so many Obama Democrats voted for me. With all of the jobs I am bringing back to our nation, that number will only get higher. Car companies and others, if they want to start doing business, or if they want to do business in our country, have to start making things here again. Win! I, I do love that all of his tweets end with a three-letter word and then an exclamation point. Win. Okay, so here is the problem with this silliness. He's talking about 35% import tariffs on German cars because we're not selling enough. And he said, we're not selling enough Chevys in Germany. There are a few problems with this. One is we actually sell a crapload of Chevys in Germany. We don't call them Chevys. They're called Opals in, in Germany. Uh, here's a chart of how many GM cars were sold outside the United States. Okay, this is global sales January through December of 2015. Okay, total sales calendar year to date. GM North America sold 3.6 million cars or so in the United States. GM Europe sold 1.2 million cars in Europe. Okay, so we sell a lot of cars. We sell a lot of cars in Europe. So the idea that we're not selling cars in Europe, okay, that's silly. By the way, the, the German vice chancellor said, well, why don't you just make better cars then? If you, don't want, if you don't want people buying German cars, why don't you just make better cars? This seems to me a very good response. If you want people to buy your cars, make better cars. And that's particularly true because it turns out that a lot of, of German cars are made right here in the United States. Here's a, a chart about U.S.-made cars as a share of U.S.-sold cars January through November 2016. So what this means is how many cars that are made in the United States, how many cars that are made in the United States are actually sold in, in the United States? Okay, meaning that if it's made here or it's made abroad. So, the, so here's the deal. Tesla, it makes almost 200% of the, the cars that it's made uh, in the United States. It sells only half of those in the United States. The other half are exported. Right? So Tesla, for every 200 cars that Tesla makes in the United States, half are sold in the United States, half are exported. Guess what the number two company here is? BMW, a German company. Well over 100% of the cars it makes in the United States are sold outside the United States. What does that mean? It means that BMW actually has a trade surplus on behalf of the United States. In other words, they're making cars in the United States, and they're bringing them elsewhere, right? They're bringing jobs to the United States. A huge percentage of German cars are actually made in the United States, 
in, in the South. They're just not made in Michigan because all those factories are unionized. Instead, they're in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, and they're, they're all over at Shreveport, Alabama. They're made all over the South of the United States. And you can see that there are other foreign companies that make a lot of their cars in the United States, too. Right? Ford sells the vast majority. It sells more than uh, Ford actually reimports cars. Uh, but 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 BMW doesn't. BMW sells its cars here, and then it sells cars elsewhere. It's pretty amazing. So the, all of this is just not true, and uh, and Trump is speaking out of his butt. But it doesn't mean that it won't be popular, as as we know from the fallacies of leftist economics. Uh, just because you're saying something that is eminently untrue economically speaking doesn't mean uh, that people won't believe it. So the idea is that if we shut down German car making and we force people to buy Fords, this will be beneficial to the car industry. Yeah, except for all of the factories that will be lost down south, and also except for the fact that. People will buy fewer cars because they'll become more expensive and crappier. Okay, time for some things I like and then some things I hate. We'll save uh, Barack Obama's longest goodbye uh, for tomorrow. Uh, so things I like. So there's a book that I'm in the middle of right now by a guy named Bernard-Henri Lévy. Um, and uh, it, is a, uh, it is a book called The Genius of Judaism. So I don't like to recommend uh, Jewish books on the program uh, too often just because you know, there are a lot of folks who are, uh, who are not Jewish, obviously, and don't have particular interest in Judaism. But what makes this uh, recommendation noteworthy is that Bernard-Henri Lévy is he's a French intellectual who's of the left. And he recognizes that the rising anti-Semitism around the world uh, is at least partially due uh, to the alliance between the left and Islamo-fascism. And he makes a great point. It's a really great point. You know, when people say not everything that's anti-Israel is anti-Semitic, that's true. But he makes the point that everything that's anti-Semitic is anti-Israel. He says the only way that you can be a, an anti-Semite and get away with it in today's world is to do it through the guise of I hate Israel. And that's something that is worth keeping in mind because the, the sort of logic that's used by so many anti, anti-Semitic advocates is if I just criticize Israel's reason for existence, if I just suggest that the Jews are some sort of – if I just spread new blood libels about how the Jews are out there to murder Palestinians and aren't committing a genocide, then that's just me being anti-Israel, not anti-Judaic. This is how you end up with the situation we talked about last week where a German court actually declared that a Palestinian attack on a synagogue in Germany was anti-Israel, not anti-Semitic. That's how you end up with that because the truth is that the crossover is extraordinarily high. Okay, other things that I like. So the Clinton Global Initiative is now going to shut down. So if you didn't think that the Clinton Global Initiative was just an enormous scam, if you didn't think that it was just a giant scam, uh, you are totally wrong. The Clinton Global Initiative is now going to be shutting down because they have no more favors to sell. They have plans to lay off its last group of employees. They said 22 CGI employees will lose their jobs due to the discontinuation of the Clinton Global Initiative. Well, that's because, again, there are no more favors to sell. Once there are, once there are no more favors to sell, then uh, the Clinton Global Initiative shuts down. So that is just another piece of good news. Uh, when it comes to the Clintons, uh, I, I, I agree with Trump's promise. I am getting very sick of the winning when it comes to the Clintons. That's, the, that's been the delicious part of all of this. Okay, time for some things that I hate. Let's do it. So one of the things that I, that I don't like, there's a race debate between Mark Lamont Hill, who I want to have on the program, because I think that I, I've been on uh, Sean Handy's show with him. I think that Mark Lamont Hill is a nice guy, and I think we can have a respectful debate here on the program. Uh, but Mark Lamont Hill is a professor at Morehouse College. He was on with Harry Hook, who is a, who is a sort of defender of the police on CNN, uh, and they got into a debate over, over racial policing, and here's how it went. I think what, what happens is when you see a black guy going into his car, People do a double take. Studies show this, if you believe in science. Um, police officers often are more aggressive with black suspects and white suspects. They often read as more guilty than their white counterparts. So, again, I don't think the cops had a racist intent. See, I, don't, I don't agree with that at all. No, I'm only basing what scientific right. studies show, but I mean, I get it. Well, I you know, know you don't, don't have to believe in that. I don't or, know or dinosaurs or anything. Show, scientific studies <laughs> actually show that. It's well, not really true. Okay, well, I'll give you an example. Uh, Philip Atiba Goff has a study out of Stanford that looks at, young, that looks at black males versus their white counterparts, and it shows that cops read black people as older than their white counterparts and more guilty than their white counterparts. So, for example, you see someone who's 15. Did he take a poll? No, he did a scientific randomized no, he, study. He thinks this. All right, no, no, he did a randomized okay, study. That's not the that's now, the opposite. You, you gotta take a poll. I'm sorry, you can't just think this because are you hearing what I'm saying? I, I'm I saying understand. The, no, you don't. I, I, if if on, you think he took a poll, then you don't understand. Hang on, guys. He hang did on, a guys. study of actual police officers, real people with real science and real studies. What we're gonna do is this. What we're gonna do is this. You don't buy. You don't buy science. I don't buy that. Hang on. What, have you read it? Have you seen it? On what basis do you not buy it? I don't buy that. Because why? Because I have experience out there in the street. How much? time has that guy been out on the street? He's been fo- Probably zero. 
Actually, he's hired by police forces in Cleveland, uh, San Francisco, and mean, L.A. That does to, not mean to, anything. To follow police on the street and watch their arrests and their stops. So everything you're saying, anything. Is, well, you just said he had no time on the street. I'm showing you that he did. So everything I, you're saying is actually not true. I got 40 hours a week for 25 years. Right, of your, own, of your own experience. Right, mine and experience of others. All right, guys. Okay, you're right. Anecdotes are better than data. I agree. Thanks. It's been awesome. Okay, so here's what I don't like about this. The cop, if he's not aware of that study, what he should say, and this is a pet peeve of mine, he should say, I'm not aware of that study. I'd be happy to look at that study. Other studies suggest that this is not true. Other studies suggest that when it comes to cops pulling people over, they do so based largely on under-statistical profiling of racial minorities. That when it comes to shooting people, according to Roland Fryer of Harvard University, did a major study of shootings, he found that black people are less likely to be shot by the cops. That when it comes to pullovers, when it comes to speeding, for example, the New Jersey state troopers, they were, they were called racist for pulling over too many black people. It turned over they were actually statistically under-profiling black people. Well, if you don't know something, then just say you don't know it, and you'd be happy to look at the study. Like right now, I'm not sure what exactly the, the study is that Mark Lamont Hill is citing. They've done a couple of big data studies, but I'm not sure that those data studies, they're not randomized. I mean, when he says there's a randomized trial, again, maybe I'm missing it, but I've done the searches online, and I don't see the, the randomized trial that he's specifically talking about. There's a research on thousands of, of interactions. This is the one from Stanford from June, I think. Maybe this is what he's talking about, where he's talking about police conduct toward black people in traffic and pedestrian stops. And he found that black people were four times more likely to be searched than whites during a traffic stop, and they were more likely to be handcuffed, even if they were ultimately not arrested. It sort of depends on which community you're in. If you're in a higher crime community, presumably you're more likely to be pulled over. That does make a difference. Also, you know, I'll admit to it's not even admission. I think that there is there's a truth to human nature that's a little more subtle than people want to recognize, and that is this. Uh, it's possible that there is some stereotyping that goes on based on the level of crime. Meaning that if you went in the early 20th century in the United States and you asked cops about statistical profiling, it's possible they statistically over-profiled Italians because the crime rate in the Italian community was really high. And then as the, as the crime rate declined, right, this is actually a pretty moderate view of how stereotyping works, as, de, as, as the crime rate declined, they stopped profiling Italian people as much. And you don't find a lot of profiling of wealthy black folks because the reality is that they're wealthy. There's not as much crime in wealthy black communities. So what you see is that it's possible that if you condition a police officer to arrest criminals day after day after day and a disproportionate share of those criminals are black, it's possible that a stereotype gets built up. That's not a good thing. That's not something that's good. It's something that's bad, obviously. You wish that, in a certain sense, police officers were machines and they could just associate the specific action of the specific person with the person without without reference to race. That's not how human brains are wired. The suggestion here isn't that we shouldn't try to, to get bias out of policing. Of course we should try to get bias out of policing. Implicit bias training, by the way, doesn't do anything. It's been counterproductive and a waste of time. If you actually want to stop bias in policing, the easiest way to do that is to get the black crime rates down. Because if black crime rates drop, then you're not going to see people profiling black folks for crime. Just realistically speaking, that's not removing the moral the moral problem of profiling black folks or saying that's, that that's fair in some way. It's not. But I'm just saying on a practical level, if you actually want to mitigate racial profiling to whatever extent it exists, the best way to do that would be to lower the black crime rates so that the natural human tendency to stereotype doesn't come into play. And again, that doesn't remove the stigma on stereotyping, nor should it. Okay, other things that I hate. So I don't actually hate this movie. I don't. But I, I want to make a point about, uh, I saw La La Land last night uh, for my birthday. My wife and I went to the, the movies. I love movie musicals. It's one of my favorite things in the world. Um, and, uh, and my daughter only knows old movie musicals. It's just all she does. And, uh, and so here's, here's a little bit of the preview uh, for La La Land if, you've never, if you haven't seen any of it. This, by the way, this portion of the show, uh, I, I am going to give some spoilers to La La Land. So if you don't want to be spoiled on La La Land, I suggest that you cut out now and that you come back tomorrow and you won't have been spoiled on La La Land. But in order for me to discuss kind of the cultural critique of La La Land, which I think is kind of important, I need to spoil it a little bit. So here's, here's the preview for La La Land. Two options. You either follow my rules or follow my rules. Capisce? Thank you. I can do it a different way. Oh, that's, that's fine. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're fired. It's Christmas. Yeah, I see the decorations. Good luck in the new year.
I just heard you play, and I want to... strange that we keep running into each other. Oh, it's, it's a musical. It's a movie musical. Uh, so here are the basic kind of artistic critiques. Number one, uh, it, and I want to, let me show, you know, so people understand, this is the preview. So that's the preview for La La Land. Here's the preview for the movie that won Best Picture, I think it's 1952, 1953. Uh, this is uh, American in Paris. Okay, here's the preview of that. <laughs> Gershwin's music, number one, so they're going to lose to Gershwin's music. Number two, it's Gene Kelly and Leslie Cohen dancing, so they can actually dance. So that makes no difference. Third, it's Vincent Timonelli doing direction, so one of the great Hollywood directors of all time. Now, I will say that Damien Chazelle, who is the director of La La Land, I think he's the most talented young director in Hollywood. Whiplash is great. La La Land has a lot to record. It's a beautifully directed film. Um, it's a little over long. It's uh, the the musical numbers leave something to be. In fact, the best musical number in the in the in the whole movie is actually the uh, the John Legend does a number, and it's a great number, and it's the best number in the movie because John Legend can sing, right? Ryan Gosling can't. It's a musical with two leads who can't sing or dance. It's sort of a problem, right? Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling at one point they tap dance a little bit, and legitimately, if I did a month of training, I could tap dance like they do, um, and that's not good because Gene Kelly was an all was a world class tap dancer. Um, but there's something else about this film, that, and here's where we get to the spoiler area. I'm, listen, I'm glad that they're doing musicals. I'm glad that it's kind of an upbeat, happy film with regard to you know the color scheme and how it's shot. Every shot is well-constructed. It's beautiful that way. And there's some really magical moments to this movie. Uh, I, it's not When I say it's a thing I hate, I don't hate the movie. I re- actually really like the movie in a lot of ways. Uh, here's the thing that I hate. Here's the thing that I hate. So in this film, in La La Land, there's one point near the end of the film the, the whole film is about he's a jazz musician and she is an aspiring actress. And they're both pursuing their careers at the same time that they're falling in love with each other. And at the end, and here's the spoiler. Okay, again, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. You've been alerted. Okay. At the very end, they don't end up together. Okay, so they don't end up together because she pursues her career. She goes off to Paris to become an actress, and he pursues his career to be this pianist in a big band, uh, in John Mayer's band, or, or John Legend's band, rather, and, uh, and then he opens his jazz club, which is what he's always wanted to do. And it's a sad, kind of bittersweet ending. So there's a segment near the, so there's a segment near the, near the end where um, there's this, this beautiful routine where they sort of, he relives in his memory what the situation would have been if he'd taken a different path. And what he sees is that he would have married her, and they would have had a kid, and they would have gotten what they wanted anyway, and it would have been really cool, it would have been really nice, right? And so it's sort of bittersweet because they got what they wanted, sort of, but they didn't get, what, they didn't get to be with each other. Here's the part that annoys me. At the end of American in Paris, which is the best comparable because they actually do a a ballet scene near the end of this that is very much like American in Paris. It's the exact scene from American in Paris almost. Uh, And the the big problem that that in American in Paris, the plot is that that Gene Kelly is an aspiring painter. And and Leslie Caron is uh, is this young girl who is uh, who was brought up. Uh, from kind of teenagehood uh, by this big star. She could go with him, she could marry him, and he is dating this woman who's this big art sponsor, and he could continue dating her, maybe marry her, become big famous art success, and instead they end up telling these other people to, to shove off, and they end up getting married themselves. That's the end of American in Paris. That's because this is the difference between the morality of the 50s and the moralities of the 2010s. The morality of the 50s was, yes, we both have career, Right? We both have things that we want to pursue. We both have dreams. I want to be an artist in Paris. You want to be you know, on the arm of some rich, famous guy. But we put those off because all that matters is the fact we're going to love each other, we're going to get married, we're going to have kids. And so you have a happy ending. In La La Land, at the very end, they both pursue their careers, and the implication is that they're both kind of happy, but they're kind of sad because they wistfully look back on the time when they loved each other and they were deeply in love and they'll always love each other. I don't like that. I don't like that crap. Because the fact is that when you are in a relationship with somebody, yes, you root for their dreams, obviously, but the chief dream that you're rooting for is being with each other. That's, that's really what you're rooting for. Now, when I, when I got married, I, uh, I got married, I just quit a, uh, a law firm job, so I wasn't working at a law firm anymore, uh, and I had no job, actually. I was unemployed when we got married. I just quit a big law firm job where I was getting paid lots of money, uh, and uh, we had just bought a condo, so we had bills. And one of the things that came up was uh, a possibility that I'd have to move to New York for a job. My wife was at UCLA at the time. And she said to me, you know, which is a much better school than the school she would have had to go to in New York, Rutgers. And she, and 
she said, look, if we have to go to New York, we'll go to New York, right? That's just the way that this works. And when, likewise, when she went to medical school, she got into UCLA, but for a little while, so that was the last school to come back. For a little while, it looked like she might have to go to Georgetown in Washington, D.C. And so I prepared to pick up and move my entire career to Georgetown with her. Because the bottom line is that it was more important to me to be married to this woman and have kids with her and have a family with her than it was for me to pursue my career in Los Angeles. And one of the things that's very irritating about the Ryan Gosling Emma Stone situation in La La Land is that she goes to Paris and she's there for like four months. And it's like, well, you know, you should just go and be free. It's four months, dude. Like, pick up the phone. If the relationship means anything, like, go on a plane. Okay, well, they, they keep giving in La La Land shout-outs to Casablanca and movies like that. In Casablanca, the leads don't end up with each other because of two major things. One, she's married, and two, it's the middle of World War II. Okay, here, your great obstacles are you don't want to pay your cell phone bill, and you don't want to spend 12 hours on a plane. Okay, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't wash. It doesn't wash at all. Like, she, gets, she kind of breaks up with him because he's traveling a lot. So go on the road with him a little bit. She doesn't want to go on the road for two weeks with him, and so they sort of break up because of that. It's like, really? That's, that's your thing? This also hits home for me because my dad is a tremendous world-class jazz pianist. Uh, he, uh, he's really good. You can go on YouTube and look at his stuff a little bit. Um, and uh, my dad, when he, was a young, when he was a youngster, when he was like 20, 21, he and my mom were dating, and he was offered the chance to tour with the Tommy Dorsey Band. For people who are jazz fans, the Tommy Dorsey Band is Tommy Dorsey Band, one of the great jazz bands of all time. He was offered to go on the road with them, exactly like Ryan Gosling's character is offered to go on the road in this film. And my dad, said, my dad turned it down. And the reason he turned it down is because he said, I'm not going to drag my fiance all along the road with me. It's a terrible life. I don't want her to have to go through that. And so he forewent that and probably hurt his career in some pretty major ways. But his goal was to grow a family with my mom. If your goal in the relationship, if your chief goal, higher than anything else, is not your marriage and your family, then you're doing it wrong. Because that should be your dream. In this, they say, oh, we, you know, believe in the ones who dream. If your dream is you want to be an actress, if your dream is that you want to be a jazz pianist, I'm glad that you have those dreams. I love dreams too. I'm a dreamer too. But your chief dream should be finding the person you love raising a family, and bringing up kids with them. That's the difference between the 50s and the 2010s. If career comes first, family suffers. If family comes first, you can still build career, and you can still be happy. But without that base of support, there's always going to be this deep underlying sadness because you're foregoing that which really matters in favor of something that matters a lot less. Okay, so we'll be back tomorrow. There'll be a lot more news, I'm sure. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.